Well, welcome everyone. I am so glad to see you all here in person um, at Elmer L. Anderson Library's conference room for this an 13th annual Pancake Poetry Reading. Poetry is such an essential part of our literary landscape, especially in the Twin Cities. And it's so great to see so many of you come out today on this beautiful spring day. Isn't it lovely to celebrate poetry and our featured poet today, David Mira. I must say it's exciting to be hosting these Friends of the Library's events in person again. Um, Zoom helped us connect during those tough times, but I'm very grateful that we can gather here all together in in, in real life rather than our Zoom life. I know our presenters appreciate being able to see your faces and when it comes time for it, hearing your questions. I'm Lisa German, the University Librarian and Dean of Libraries, and I hope that if I have not met you in person that we can greet each other at the reception following our reading. This annual gathering actually began informally years ago when librarian Marcia Pancake planned a special reading each year during National Poetry Month. When she retired, we continue to honor this tradition and we named the series in her honor. Marcia, thank you so much. I'd also like to thank librarian um, Malika Grant who has carried on this tradition of pancake poetry series, but she is unable to join us today, but her parents are here, and so that's so awesome. <laughs> Today's program is being sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries as part of the Friends Forum, a series for curious minds. We have wonderfully supportive board of directors of the Friends, and our current chair, um, Amelius White, I think, is sitting right over there. Yay, Amelius. And we have our past chairs here, Catherine Jordan, I see. Yay. And other past chairs are here as well. I know I saw Margaret here too. So today's program is being sponsored by the Friends as part of the Friends Forum, a series of for curious minds. The generosity of our friends members is just unparalleled and they support our libraries, our staff, and our student employees as well as this event series. Today we add David Mira to a long list of stellar Minnesota pancake poets, some of whom are here today, Jim Lenfesty, the late Lewis Jenkins, Hyde Erdrich, Ed Bach Lee, that's here, Joyce Sutphin, Michael Dennis Brown, Ray Gonzalez, Bao Fee, Margaret Hesse, Jim Moore, Wang Ping, and Deborah Keenan. That is an awesome list. David has written four poetry collections and many other works including several plays, essays, a memoir, and criticism. He also writes and teaches about the craft of writing 
including in his most recent book, A Stranger's Journey, Race, Identity, and Narrative Craft in Writing. David is a renowned teacher, mentor, and part of the Twin Cities literary community. He's taught no, not only at the University of Minnesota, but also as a visiting professor at almost every college in the Twin Cities area and for writing programs at the Loft and the Playwright Center. His many awards include the Carl Sandburg Award, given by the Chicago Public Libraries, two NEA Literature Fellowships, two Bush Foundation Fellowships, four Loft McKnight Awards, and several Minnesota State Arts Board Grants. We're also fortunate to have Ed Bach Lee join us today for the discussion part of our program. Ed Bach Lee is a previous pancake poet, playwright, and artist. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2006 Penn Open Book Award and the 2006 Asian American Literary Award for Real Karaoke People. In 2012, he won a Minnesota Book Award in Poetry and an American Book Award for Wordle. Before we begin the program, I'd like to share an acknowledgement that is relevant and important to all of us. The Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. And now, please welcome David Mura. Thank you, Dean. Uh, I wanted to thank Marcia Pancake for starting this series, having this series, uh, the staff of the library for supporting it, uh, the friends of the library, um, and Ed for agreeing to be my interlocutor. A um, couple things before I start. One is I, g I gave a reading uh, here on the West Bank, probably not in the art gallery, probably in 1975-76. I was a student reader, uh, so I read a couple poems. It's a long time ago. Um, and I know some of you have this feeling like when you realize like, oh, you're the oldest person or the oldest you know, poet in the room. I'm finding <laughs> that. Um, so um, I'm going to read, start with a poem from my first book, which I rarely read, but I thought since I'm doing this reading, I'd do that. It's called The Natives, and it, it is a sort of allegory in part, I thought, about the Vietnam War at the time. Um, and it's actually a takeoff uh, from Edward Mears' great poem, The Horses. It's called The Natives. Several months after we lost our way, they began to appear, their quiet eyes assuring us, their small painted legs scurrying beside us. By then our radio had been gutted by fungus. 
Our captain's cheek stunned by a single bullet. Our ammo vanished the first night we discovered our maps were useless, our compasses a lie. The sun and stars seemed to reel above us. The second week forced us on snakes, monkeys, lizards, and toads. We ate them raw over wet, smoking fires. Waking one morning, we found a riverboat loaded with bodies hanging in the trees like an ox on a sling marking the stages of flood. One of us thought he heard the whir of a chopper, but it was only the monsoon drumming the leaves, soaking our skin so damp you felt you could peel it back to scratch the bones of your ankle. Gradually our names fell from our mouths, never heard again. Nights, faces glowing, we told stories of wolves, and the jungle seemed colder, more a home. And then we glimpsed them, like ghosts of children darting through the trees, the curtain of rain. We told each other nothing, hoping they'd vanish. But one evening, the leaves parted. Slowly they emerged and took our hands, their striped faces dripping, looking up in wonder at our grizzled cheeks. Stumbling like gods without powers, we carried on our backs what they could not carry, the rusted grenades, the amylous rifles, barrels clotted with flies. They waited years before they brought us to their village, led us in circles till time disappeared. Now, stone still, our feet tangled with vines, we stand by their doorway like soft-eyed virgins in the drilling rain. The hair on our shoulders dangles and shines. You know, one of the things about the Vietnam War was I think Americans got to their country and the Vietnamese were shorter. And they thought, oh, we, we, can, we can take them, right? You know, uh, uh, I'm going to do some stuff on Japanese-American history, so here's a short poem, History. A temple in someone's keeping, fallen to ruin. The last of the monks left the gate open like a palm. Um, I'm a third-generation Japanese-American. My grandfather uh, came here in 1898. I still am occasionally asked where I'm from. Um, both my parents' families were imprisoned in World War II um, in internment camps. The reaction to that was, was they, they taught me or instructed me that I should assimilate. and essentially think of myself as a white person. And it wasn't until my late 20s when I began reading black authors that I suddenly realized I was never going to become white and I had to figure out who I was. And it was also a fact that my parents never talked about the internment camps. Um, I'm going to read this quote from Los Angeles Times, 1942, because it's reminiscent 
in many ways of the anti-immigrant stances we hear today. A viper is nonetheless a viper wherever the egg is hatched. A leopard's spots are the same, and its disposition is the same wherever it is whelped. So a Japanese-American born of Japanese parents nurtured upon Japanese traditions, living in a transplanted Japanese atmosphere, and thoroughly inoculated with Japanese thoughts, Japanese ideas, and ideals, notwithstanding its nominal brand of accidental citizenship, almost inevitably, and with the rarest of exceptions, grows up to be a Japanese, not an American, in his thoughts, in his ideas, in his ideals, and himself is a potential and menacing, if not an actual danger to our country, unless properly survived, controlled, and as it were, hamstrung. So, yeah, uh, that, that, that was the atmosphere at the time my parents were interned. Um, I recently uh, co-produced and wrote and narrated a documentary armed with language for Twin Cities Public Television, which told the story of the second generation Japanese Americans who studied Japanese for the military intelligence service at Camp Savage and Fort Snelling. MacArthur's chief of intelligence said that they shortened the war by two years in the Pacific and saved probably a million American lives, proving, you know, disproving this previous statement completely, right? Um, so uh, this is about picturing my grandfather and grandmother in bed, which you can do. You can't really do that with your parents, but. <laughs> uh, uh, my grandfather used to write haiku. Uh, the biwa is a Japanese stringed instrument. Uh, Otosan, Okasan, our father and mother, Ron is chaos. Grandfather and grandmother in love. Now I will ask for the one true word beyond betrayal that creaks and buoys like the bedsprings used by the bodies that begot the bodies that begot me. Now I will think of the moon, bluing the white sheets soaked in sweat, that heard him whisker haiku of clover, azalea, the cry of the cuckoo, complaints of moles and beetles, blight and bad deaths, as the biwa's spirit bubbled up between them, its song quavering. Now I take this word. Crack it like a seed between the teeth. Spit it out into the world to root in the loam of his greenhouse roses. Let it leave the sweet taste of teriyaki, a grain of a rice lodged in my molars, in my breath, of, in my nostrils, a faint, hot breath of sake. Now as a tosan okasan drift towards each other, that reverberates the run of lovers, and the ship of the past burst into that other world. And she, still teasing, pushes him away, swats his hand, a pesky, tickling fly, then turns to his face that cries out laughing as he hauls her in, trawling the currents, gathering a sea that seems endless, depths a boy dreams of, where flounder, dolphin, fluorescent fins, fish with wings, spill before him glittering scales. And letting slip the net, he dives under, 
and night washes over them, slipping from sight, just the soft shush of waves, drifting groundswells, echoing the knocking tide of morning. And, you know, um, many of the brides of my grandparents' generation came to America as pitcher brides. Uh, my aunt said that my grandfather was so good-looking, he went back in person. <laughs> so they were truly in love. My aunt always tells a story about going to a movie with uh, her husband and, and seeing her parents holding hands and realizing she and her husband were not holding hands. <laughs> so um, after December 7th, they rounded up the leaders of the Japanese-American community, even before the orders for the internment. And many of these men were kept in, away from their families for the entire war. Uh, a few were even kept six months after the war. This is a man like my grandfather who owns a nursery. Play, uh, his friend Moss has a biwa. His friend Moss has bruises because the Japanese-Americans sometimes fought about how to respond to the camps, uh, whether to protest or not. Um, I think that's all you need to know. Letters from an internment camp. Dear Michiko, do songs sound different in prison? I think there are more spaces between the words. I think when the song ends, the silence does not stop singing. I think there is nothing but song. Matsuo's back. His bruises almost healed, a tooth missing. His biwa comes out again with the stars, a nightly matter. He sends his regards. Do you get fed these putrid gray beans? I hope you haven't swallowed too many of them. They put my stomach in a permanent revolt, shouting no emperor should ever feed his people so harshly. I agree. Let's, you and I, grow skinny together. Let's keep the peace. Any second, the rights will go out. I look around and see many honest men who hide their beauty as best they can. I think that's what the whites hate, our beauty. The way we carry the land and life of plants inside us, seedlings and fruit, flowers and the frost tree, fields freed of weeds. Why can't they see the doors inside them? So, if someone found an answer to that, they would find an answer to why those who are hungry and cold go off to battle to become hungrier and colder, farther from home. Nine o'clock, the rights all out. Sometimes, Michiko, I think of my greenhouse. How I used to stand at night in its fleshy, steaming dark and say, these are the most beautiful orchids and roses in the world. And their fragrance seeped inside me, stayed even when I sold them. 
What is it like now in Tokyo? They say it is sunk like a great ship. Ah, forgive me. Blessed with the chance to talk to my wife, more beautiful than any greenhouse rose, all I can do is moan. And yet, if I didn't tell you, I would be angry at you for not listening, blaming you for what I haven't spoken. And it's too late for that. When you write back, please tell me what country I'm in. I feel so poor now. These words are all I own. My wife asked my father a couple years ago, what would have happened if you hadn't been interned? And he said, we would have been rich. <laughs> he said, my, my mother had just landed the contract for the racetrack and was about to expand the nursery. Um, when the Nisei were, when the Japanese Americans were released, um, they, you know, my, my uncle was a soldier in the 442nd when he got back to Chicago. Uh, he'd go to a barber shop and they wouldn't serve him. Um, a family friend took this psychological test applying for a job. It's called, this poem is called Interment Camp Psychology, circa 1945. Just after his release, Moss took a psychological test. Three questions he never forgot. Do you think People are out to get you. Do you feel you are being followed? When you see a crowd of strangers walking towards you, do you try to avoid them? To all three, he answered yes and knew he sounded insane. Yeah, I think of that as an allegory for being a person of color in this country, you know. Um, as I said, my parents never talked about the internment camps. Um, they were very young at the time. My mom was 11, my dad was 15. My dad's response was, um, you know, after, before the war, I had to work at my father's nursery every day after school. And when I got the camps, I could go out and play baseball. He, he didn't really talk about this business that his parents had built up over, you know, decades. And, and then losing it. Um, so in, in the first four lines of this, I'm writing you know, my romanticized version of the past and, and uh, my grandfather being fired. And my, when it goes, no, 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 the rest of the poem is in my mother's voice. So this is an argument on 1942 for my mother. And again, this first part is me writing. Near Rose's chop suey and Jinosuke's grocery, the temple where incense hovered and inspired dense evening chants, prayers for Buddha's mercy, colorless and deep. That day he was fired. No, 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 she tells me. Why? Bring it back. The camps are over, also overly dramatic. Forget show you stained Feroski, mochi on a stick. 
You're like a terrier, David, gnawing a bone, an old, old trick. Mostly, we were bored. Women cooked and sewed, men played blackjack, dug gardens of Ben Joe. Who noticed barbed wire guards in the towers? We were children, hunting stones, birds, wildflowers. Yes, mother hid tins of suke mono and eel beneath the bed, and when the last was peeled, clamped tight her lips, growing thinner and thinner. But cancer, not the camps, made her throat blacker. And she didn't die then, after the war in St. Paul. You weren't even born. Oh, I know, I know, it's all part of your job, your way, but why can't you glean how far we've come, how much I can't recall? David, it was so long ago. How useless it seems. Um, during the pandemic, there's been this alarming rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, and particularly against Asian women. Uh, and I remember, you know, after, it's a long story I won't go into, but I got kicked out of graduate school with seven incompletes here, ruining, ruining the image of the Asian American student. <laughs> um, But, now where was I going with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to go out in writers in the schools with some of the writers here, like Margaret Hasse and Michael Moose, and we would go out all over Minnesota and teach in grade schools and high schools. And, and I wouldn't think about it. And I realized during the pandemic, now I would think about it, right? I would think about if I was going up north to the Iron Range or, or to East Grand Forks. And, you know, we think about racial progress in this country, and it, it's incredibly alarming. So this is about an incident that happened, you know, uh, outside a grocery store. Also, uh, it mentions Paladin, and, and I, I see enough gray hearts, so some of you remember Paladin. He was like a gunslinger, yeah. right? And I, after this, I wrote this poem. Um, Rick Shiomi said, you remember what happens at the beginning of Paladin? And I said, yeah, Paladin is all dressed in black, like I am today. I'm <laughs> and he comes down the stairs with, with his six guns, looking really cool. And Rick said, yeah, but then a Chinese messenger in pigtails named Hey Boy comes into the lobby going, telegram, telegram for Mr. Paladin. And I realized when Rick told me, I don't remember that Chinese messenger. I identified with Paladin, and I knew at six or seven, like I was not supposed to identify with that Chinese messenger. 1957. Cut to Chicago, June, a boy of six. Next year, my hero will be Mickey Mantle, but this noon, his father eases the Bel Air past Wilson with cowboy hat black cocked at an angle, my skin dark from the sun. I'm Paladin. 
and my six guns pointed cars whizzing past, blast after blast, ricocheting the glass. Like all boys in such moments, my face attempts a look of what, toughness, bravado, ease? Until impatient, my father's arm wails across the seat, and I sit back, silent at last. Later, as we step from IGA with our sacks and a man in a serge suit stained with ink steps forward, hey, you a Jap, you from Tokyo? You a Jap, a chink? I stop, I look up, I don't know him. My arm yanks forward and suddenly the sidewalk's rolling, buckling like lava melting and I know father will explode, shouts fist, I know his temper. And then I'm in that dream where nothing happens. The ignition grinds, the man's face presses against the windshield, and father stares ahead, fingers rigid on the wheel. That night in my bedroom, maws like fingertips pecked the screen from the living room, the muffled TV. As I imagined Shane stepping into the dusty street, in the next bed, my younger brother starts to talk. You can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. Who can explain where this chant began? Or why, when father throws the door open, shouts stalking chaos erupted in his house, he swoops on his son with the same swift motion that the son, like an animal, like a scared and angry little boy, fell on his brother, beating him in the dark. This is from a longer, both of these are from a longer poem called The Colors of Desire. And this is uh, Miss June 1964, and it's about my discovery of Miss June 1964 <laughs> in my father's closet. <laughs> I'm 12, home from school with a slight fever. I slide back the door of my parents' closet. My mother's out shopping, rummaging along pumps, flats, lined in a rack, and zipped the garment bags one by one. It slides like a sigh from the folded sweaters. I flip through ads for cologne, LPs, a man in a trench coat lugging a panda-sized Fleischmann's fifth. Somewhere past the photo of all people, Albert Schweitzer in his pith helmet, the cartoon nude man perched as a gargoyle. I spill the photo millions of men, white, black, yellow, have seen, though the body before me is white, 18. Her breasts are enormous, almost frightening. The aureolas seem large as my fist. This is three glossy pages sprawl before me. I start to touch myself. There is some terror. My mother will come home. Some delight I've never felt before. And I do not cry out. I make no sound. How did I know that photo was there? Or mother know I knew? Two nights later, at her request, father lectures me on burning out too early.
Beneath the cone of light at the kitchen table, we're caught like the shyest of lovers. He points at the booklet from the AMA. He writes their PR. Read it, he says, and, and if you have any questions. 30 years later, these questions remain. <laughs> and his answers, too, are still the same. Really, David, it was just a magazine. In the camps, my father's lost nursery, the way he chased me around the yard in L.A., even the two-by-four he swung. Why connect them with years you wandered those theaters? Is nothing in your life your own volition? The past isn't just a box full of horrors. What are those mornings in the surf near Santa Monica, all of us casting line after line, arcing over breakers all the way from Japan, or plopping down beside my mother, a plate full of mochi, pulling it like taffy with our teeth, show you dribbling down our chins? Think of it, David. There were days like that. We were happy. Um, this is called South Carolina Sea Island. And it, we, my wife's family is from Atlanta, so we would uh, do summer vacation at Fripp, which is just outside of Beaufort. Um, and they're the, the beautiful sea islands and coastal scenery, but it's also where the Gullah are, which were, were specific African-American culture. They, they, because of the isolation of the islands, they were able to retain, retain much more of their West African culture. Um, so that's part of the history of that area. And so my boys and I are crabbing, and at the end of the story, I start to tell them a little bit about the poem, about the, the Gala. Uh, one other thing, we at, at this place where we're, a little pier we were um, crabbing from, at a certain point, uh, this huge wave came up, and we didn't realize what was happening, but it was two dolphins. So, it's called South Carolina Sea Island. A purple blush above the marshes. Below on the wooden deck, my two boys squeal at the cage of crabs they've yanked from the muddy inlet. Each year we come back to this. A heron's white cross sails towards the sea. The tide crawls out, and a wasp sputters about the wooden shelter as I take it in. My boys, the caged crabs, the heron, the sky, a scent of iodine salting my tongue. Once slaves hid in these islands. Scions of a tongue they kept alive for their own, foraging boars, fish, crabs, and deer, a teeming Eden just beyond original sin. Nights over the ocean, did the stars chart mists they shrouded from their far forest home? Did they cipher barking hounds, hunting within the tidal winds? or chant rhythms and songs to ward them back. 
Did they holler praise to the crabs and boars and fish for their bellies, pray to their gods to hold their bodies hidden? And are they still listening, those gullah ghosts? Now, ripping through the inlet, a giant wave roars up higher and higher and thrashes on. Two dolphins, fins, flanks, churning the current. We stare at their passing, seething to the sea. The sky bleeds out its bruise. Salt marshes swell and darken the tide. Trudging off with their catch, my sons are quieter now. As the night falls about us, quick and black, I tell them again a history we can't take back. Um, my kids went to Marcy, which is just, uh, you know, down the road from the university. Um, we, we didn't name our, our, our daughter Samantha uh, a Japanese name because I thought it would make her too different. And then I realized, like, at a school like Marcy, who, who would care? Nobody would care, right? <laughs> So this, this is just about, um, and, and all, I don't have to explain this, but I will just mention this. We, we all know about Lake Wobegon, where, you know, that phrase. Um, and, and that still tends to be the image of the Twin Cities, right? And of course, it's, you know, uh, my kids went to South, Minneapolis South, which is 20% Native American, 20% Black and East African, 20% uh, Latino, 10% Asian, and 30% white. Um, so, Minneapolis public. There are 150 first languages in our schools, and so many aliens, even E.T. would go unnoticed. Though if your tongue moved one way in the land of your birth, it must move another now, awkward at first. There are blacks here who've never been to Africa. Africans who've never heard a Baptist prayer, much less the solemn dirges of Lutherans, or how the artist formerly known is some sort of prince. <laughs> In the anthology of American Buddhist poetry, you will find not one face of a Tibetan, but they are here with girls and boys named Tenzin, and one, my son's good friend, throws a hard, mean spiral. Esmir is not the name of a girl, but a Bosnian boy who crouches at a table and glues a lamp together. And later, when my other son conspires on a book, a touch of rabies, a heartbreaking tale of good dogs gone bad. <laughs> Why tell a soul of the sieges that brought him here, or stories of the Dalai Lama and the temples destroyed, or troops of the warlords in the streets of Somalia, the borders dividing death from safety, if not evil and good. Say you're Egyptian 
or Haitian. Here you're singular and not part of a Big Apple ghetto. If you're Chinese, most likely you're adopted or else your parents study engineering at the U. And have I mentioned the Mexicans? In West Side Story, the rumble starts with Puerto Ricans and working class whites in a high school gym. This year, Maria is still Natalie Wood White to Jamaica's half-black Anita, and the Jetsport Blacks, one Tibetan, and my Hapa daughter, who still doesn't question such casting, or why Bye Bye Birdie last year just might not be the choice of half the school for a song and dance they could take on as their own. Still at the spring school dance, J-Lo and Ja Rule set the awkward bump and grind of junior high girls. And the boys watch on that sidelines as boys that age do, whether Bosnian, black, white, Somali, Tibetan. I'm told we live in the land of Great Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, the men good looking, and the children above average. And I always add, everyone's white. Hey, Tenzin, Nabil, Gotel Garrison, not now, not quite. Um, my son had a good friend, Abdi. And they, they were working on a hip-hop album together. And Abdi was shot, it's not his real name, but he was shot outside the Coil Rec Center, just a few blocks. Um, so this is about his death. Um, and, and my son has become very close to many Somali kids for all sorts of different reasons, including his girlfriend is Somali. I think that's all you need to know. Home for Abdi. 10.35. Nets and mosquitoes blurring streetlights in the parking lot of the Coil Rec Center. And Abdi smoking, chilling just after the lights slipped away on this near solstice. And the lines he's on fleek flow through the girl he passed at the Mall of America, the apartment he'll go back to without his mother, return to Mogadishu to aid his dying poet father, heart failing without metaphor. And Abdi thinks, tomorrow I'll be breaking Ramadan. As the beats my son Nico laid down for him start to jump, my brain ain't neurological, beyond ecological. I've torched the devil's follicles, stroking his blood-red tail, thinking where we failed and where a bullet sails lurking late for Ismail. Three shots. Pop, pop, pop. Here's only the first behind him in his head, his lines, that girl, Ismail, his mother, the fast off Ramadan, all explode from his skull into the June night as he topples. And suddenly there's two black brothers over him, smashing at his chest, and he's not even thinking, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And the streetlight above burns fluorescence into his retina, gnats, mosquitoes, and a strange yellow glow before the red, the red 
the red, the red. And he'll never witness his brother, his sister Jamila, his friends Yasmin and Khadijah. And my son Nico hunkered in the waiting room as the surgeons huddled two hours to undo what can't be undone. And three days later, Nico stands with Abdi's friends and family. The mother just returned from Somalia, his father still dying, unable to fly. And there is no coffin to cover his sleeping face as he's lowered two graves from Yasmin's brother. And my son grips his shaking girlfriend as he, and as he looks at Abdi's mother, the only Somali mother, he says, who ever accepted him, even loved him. He thinks of the track Abdi and he jammed on, the album they'd planned, and how just hours early at work when he told his boss of his friend's death, his boss shot back, well, that's what you get for hanging around with those people. And how did they get to be my son's people? And how am I to comfort my son weeping before me in my study or chastise him for using my wife's credit card to help buy the mother's plane fare and a bus ticket for another friend to leave for Fargo so he doesn't become one more Abdi? And my son saying he looked at Abdi's mother's face falling into her son in the grave. He wanted to rip the clouds from the sky, rip his boss's hair from their follicles, cut the tracks of their album that will never be finished, and the kids in school shouting at Abdi, look at me, I'm the captain, and hey, Mohammed suicide bomber. And my son's saying, I, I can't believe he's dead, Dad. I, I, I can't take it in. And I'm holding him as Abdi will never be held by his mother, his father, the poet, dying in Mogadishu. And I can't say I hate this world as much as you, Nico, though that too is in my heart. So I say, his life was not his death. Your friendship was not his death. His music was not his death. And so I say, listen, he's still rapping. Those lines are still there. He's still talking to you. What is he saying? And Nico, as his body shakes in my arms, he, he'd want me. He'd want me to be happy. And I see Abdi's face standing beside us. And I tell him, thank you, Abdi. Thank you for loving my boy. I timed this out, and it ends up being longer than. So I'll read uh, a couple more poems. <coughs> This is why Bruce Lee is sad, and there's an epigraph to this which explains this. Um, there was an article in the New York Times, and it read, Can a fish be depressed 
This question has been floating around my head ever since I spent the night in a hotel across from an excruciatingly sad-looking Siamese fighting fish. His name was Bruce Lee, according to the sign beneath his little bow. Bruce Lee, totally still, his lower fin grazing the clear faux rocks on the bottom of his home. When he did finally move just slightly, I got the sense he would prefer to be dead. So if you know Bruce, Bruce Lee thought up this series Kung Fu, and they gave it to David Carradine. He was on Green Hornet, um, you know, amazing. Um, and he thought after being on Green Hornet, he might get his own. And that's when Bruce Lee went back to Hong Kong, where he became a star. Um, he was friends with Chuck Norris. Um, and his son, Brandon, was unfortunately killed on the set of The Crow in an accident like happened with Alec Baldwin recently. Why Bruce Lee is sad? Because no one listens to fish. Because I could have swum in the deepest oceans and coldest depths. Because I swam the deepest oceans and coldest depths. Because I pitched a show with a martial arts master wandering the West. Because I could have torn apart David Carradine with one hand blindfolded. Because David Carradine stole my gung fu. Because I wore a mask on Green Hornet when I slipped off my mask. Because Cato chauffeured Brett Reed and did his master's bidding. Because I could have kicked Van Williams' ass blindfolded with both hands tied. Because the melancholy of fish is of far more interest than the suicide rate of Asian American women or depression in our men. Because I didn't hear the cheers in Harlem when I thrashed Truck Norris. Because no one uh, what I saw what I held back to make the fight seem even. Because Chuck Norris now stumps for Trump. Because my white wife's family disowned her. Because the martial arts world forbade my teaching Lofan and blacks. Because they bulleted my son Brandon on the set of Crow. Because I swam back to Hong Kong. When I swam back to Hong Kong, no one noticed. Because when I said, be water, my friend, this aquarium wasn't my dream. Because death stared from a thousand mirrors, and no fist could smash all that glass ceiling. Because if you enter a dragon and come out a fish, you're surely a gook in America, where David Carradine, cursed and self-asphyxiated in a sexual ritual, isn't as sick as Chuck Norris, who once called me friend, now brain for a man who would ban me back to China to be stuffed in a fishbowl, looking as sad as this world has become. Um, this is the last poem. When, when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, the first time, I would listen to her belly, and I, I was afraid that she would only recognize her my wife's voice, so I made recordings of my voice, and I had her place the headphones on, on her belly. And I love reading this now because my, my daughter just had our first grandchild, uh, Tadashi, in August, uh, and we, we take care of him two days a week. 
Also, if you're in the Cochrane or Seward neighborhood, my daughter is running for state representative. So this is a plug for her. It's called Listening, and it's images from a scroll that I found outside my, at a temple in my grandparents' home village when I visited. Um, Hachimaki is the, the Thai, Tori is the Shinto gates, uh, Shoji are the paper doors. I think that, that's it. Listening. And from that village, steaming with mist, riddled with rain, from the fishermen in the bay hauling up nets of silver flecks, for the droning of the Buddhist priest in the morning, incense thickening his voice, a bit otherworldly, almost sickly. From the oysters ripped from the sea bottom by half-naked women, their skin darker than the bark in the woods, their lungs as endless as some cave where a demon dwells. Soon their harvests will be split open by a blade, moist, meaty flesh drenched in the smell of sea bracken, the tidal winds. From the Tori, halfway up the mountain, and the steps to the temple where the gong shimmers with echoes of bright metallic sound. From the waterfall, hover, streaming, hovering in the eye, and an illusion rising from the cedars that have nothing to do with time, from the small, mud-cramped streets of rice shops and fishmongers, from the pebbles on the riverbed, the aquamarine stream, floating pine trucks felled upstream by men with hachimaki tied round their forehead and grunts of yosho, I remember from my father in childhood. From this mythical land of the empty sign and a thousand thousand manners, on the tip of this peninsula far from Kyoto, the shogun's palace, in a house of shoji and clean-cut pine crawling on to the straw baton, one of my ancestors lay his head, as I do now, on a woman's belly and felt an imperceptible bump like the bow of a boat hitting the swell, and wondered how anything so tiny could cause such rocking, unbroken joy. Thank you. So, so now my friend and good colleague and terrific poet Ed Buckley will he and I will have a little conversation and then be thinking of questions. Can we give another round of applause for David Murrow? Um, I've heard uh, many of those poems before, but I always get something new and um, the performance. We, we know David as a writer, as a poet, as a novelist, short story writer, playwright, um, spoken word artist, performer, actor. There's pretty much no genre in the word arts that he hasn't done. And I think um, I'm always inspired is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat>
So I've prepared a few questions, and then I believe we'll be doing a Q&A. Is that the format? OK, all right. Um, it's such a long career. I know that you know. You, you mentioned you your first reading. Was, was it in this room in 19? It was in the art gallery. Yeah. 75, yeah. right? I don't even know how many years ago that was. That, that was many, many, many decades. Um, <laughs> it's a little mind-blowing. Was anyone here? <laughs> Some people were here. This building was not here. All right. It's like defying matter. Um, so I personally have been thinking a lot about hope lately and this notion of hope as kind of like, I go back and forth. Hope as something like, you know, like gardening. So you plant seeds and you, you can't hope for vegetables in your garden if you don't plant seeds and do the labor, right? And maintain the garden. And is it hope, um, you hope that things will go well, things may not, depending on many factors, but um, there is a, there's a hope in nature, that nature will take its course and that most of the seeds will, uh, things will turn out. Um, and hope in human nature and humans as sort of like a, a manifestation of physical nature and that things will just work out, all we have to do is the labor and just stick to common sense, like farmers. Um, and then the other part of me is, has been thinking of hope as kind of um, something potentially corrosive, the flip side of hatred. Hope is the flip side of hatred. And I've been thinking about this quote by James Baldwin and Eddie Glout Jr., um, a scholar who has written on Baldwin, as David has, in relation to Baldwin being asked a question about guns and, and blacks arming themselves. And this was late in Baldwin's career. Um, and this does tie back to David's work because well, we're not at the beginning and the middle of his career. We don't know where we are, but it's been many decades. So the quote by Baldwin is, if you're going to kill that white man in terms of taking up arms, um, don't hate him. The hatred will corrode the soul. And this is Baldwin at the end where um, he is least hopeful and and um, you could argue still most moral. And so my question, I have to, that's the framework of my question. So David, you've been since 1974 in the Twin Cities and you've um, been publishing steadily since, the, you know, you've taught uh, such as at the Loft Literary Center I mean, it's so hard to, to give a compendium of his contributions as a former board member of the Loft, um, but then 
not being involved in the loft for a number of years for reasons I'll get into. And then coming back in recent years, in the last several years, teaching a course to strictly BIPOC writers, um, many writers, teaching at Vona, which is Voices of Our Native Arts in the Bay Area, which is also exclusively for young writers of color, up and coming writers of color. Um, editing the anthology, We Are Mentorized, Voices of Justice, from Minneapolis to the World with Carolyn Holbrook recently. And there's this new book coming out. Um, can you remind me of the title? Uh, uh, the Story's Whiteness Tells Itself, mm -hmm. Racial Myths in Our American Narratives. So I remember way back when in the 90s reading um, in Mother Jones an article called Secrets and Anger um, about your involvement with the Miss Saigon protests and the fallout with your white friends at the time who didn't understand why you were doing what you were doing and didn't see it as any business of a writer or a poet to be that involved in politics, to be in the streets. Um, 30 years later, you're still doing the same thing. I don't know exactly where those people are, or how they view things in light of everything that's happened in the world since, or that's come to light um, for everyone since. My question is, how do you, what is all this predicated on, and how has that changed? Has, is it hope? Is it morality? Is it faith? Is it a, a sense of, you know, to be a little cynical, a debt owed? Or is it still, are you just as hopeful as ever in like this next forthcoming book, taking on whiteness? Um, you know, as you were talking about hope, I was thinking two things. I was thinking about, um, I think it's Akhmet Tova's memoir, Hope Without Hope. And, uh, and uh, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist, whose remark was optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect, or pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So you, you have to constantly be just truthful about the way things are. But it, you, you cannot give up, right? And then when you're thinking, what is all this predicated on? I think as a, as a writer, I, I saw my duty is to tell the truth and to investigate the truth um, where, wherever you know that leads you. At the time I had those arguments with white friends, uh, it was over yellow face casting. And I don't think there was any of them who would get up today and defend yellow face casting. It was also against the Orientalism of Miss Saigon, which took the plot of Madama Butterfly, which was written by an Italian, not a Japanese, um, and just transposed it to Vietnam. It's like Vietnam, Japanese, they're all the same. They don't value life. They commit suicide at the drop of a hat. Uh, there were so many other things wrong with that musical in terms of its plot, in terms of the way it portrayed the Vietnamese. 
uh, they didn't even bother to translate the prayers that they said in the original so that the people were just mumbling mumbo-jumbo. Okay, that was the spirit in which they, 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 they did that musical. Now, when I protested, I, I had these arguments with white friends. What they didn't like was I wrote about those arguments. And I had, and they sent me notes afterwards. One was, uh, you can write about your parents, but you can't write about your friends. I don't know. Um, so one of them said, have you become a racial separatist? Another said, the reward, quoted Wendell Berry, the reward for, for destroying community is power. And I said, I think Wendell Berry was talking about corporations going into farming communities and buying individual family farms. I don't think he was talking about one Japanese American writing an article about arguments with his white friends. Um, there, there were many repercussions. I, I essentially was ostracized in many ways from the white writing community. I was dropped from an editorial board. Uh, my writing of that article was cited as reasons not to hire me. Um, and, but at the same time, we were starting the Asian American Renaissance and uh, building up a whole community of Asian American artists. And that, that happened right at the time of Theater Mu was starting up. And in fact, Theater Mu, the conversations to start Theater Mu happened at the first Asian American Renaissance Conference. Rick Xiaomi and Dong Il Lee were talking on my front porch uh, at, at a dinner we were having, and they were saying, oh, we're interested, we should start an Asian American theater. And so the, you know, I, I co-edited with Carolyn Holbrook, who's such a terrific asset to this community, um, uh, what We Are Meant to Rise, Voices for Justice, Minneapolis to the World, and it's an anthology of BIPOC Minnesota writers, which includes many writings on uh, the murder of George Floyd and the protests, you know, from writers who grew up in the area. You know, Ed's essay starts the book. Balfi back there has a terrific essay about growing up in, in the Phillips neighborhood and what those de how those demonstrations affected him. Both Bao and Ed are writing also about being parents raising young daughters to try to understand all of these events. Uh, somebody like Safi Hala Farrar writes about growing up, a Somali young woman growing up in the area. Uh, um, Melissa Olson writes about saving these Native American radio tapes uh, because the building was right near the precinct. And so all, there are all these different perspectives. And it, it represents, you know, the the a whole change in the literary culture here. The first big reading I went to here was at the firehouse, and it was Robert Bly was the headliner, and it was people, Jim Moore, Trish Hampel, uh, Jill Breckenridge, I think Phoebe Hansen, uh, and I think I was probably the only writer of color in that room. Um, and obviously now, you know, the, there are different audiences uh, for writing, and, and a whole new generation of writers. Um, so that absolutely gives me hope. Uh, it gives me hope when, I don't know if you saw Brina's Apples at Children's Theater Company, but there was a terrific 16-year-old Asian-American actress who just took over the stage and went, my God, this is great. They're, they're continuing to come. Um, 
So we're going backwards and forwards at the same time, right? Um, there's a portion of the white population that's freaked out by the demographic changes, wants to continue to maintain white supremacy. Um, and there is a portion of the progressive white population and BIPOC people who understand that you know, we, uh, we have not actually lived up to our American ideals of equality, freedom, justice, democracy. And there's always been, you know, part of the thing in my book is that America started with the goal of freedom, equality, democracy. But it also started from 1619 on with the maintenance of white supremacy as a goal. Now, obviously, there were various conservative politicians think this is anathema or untrue, but it's actually true. That goal has always been there in American society and culture. And part of my book is about how we still don't realize the enormity of how deeply seated that struggle to maintain white supremacy is in our history. Somebody like Jefferson, great man, brilliant intellect, we wouldn't have a country without him, but he was also the leading ideologist for slavery during his time. He kept his own children slaves. And we just have to deal with that. Just like we have to deal with Lincoln, great emancipator, great man. Our country would not be what it is without him. But he was also a racist. And his own statements prove that. And so when, when people say, you know, as I talk about, you know, well, you can't judge Lincoln by the standards of his, you have to judge him by the standards of his time, not our time. Okay. All of the black people of his time thought they were equal. The ministers who went to visit Lincoln, whom he told, the black ministers whom he told, you will never be part of this nation. They believed they were equal. So when you're saying, we have to judge Lincoln by the standards of his time, whose standards are those? They're just white standards. So you're creating a white more, you know, like remember when the baseball leagues were segregated and black players could not play. So great players like Satchel Paige uh, 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 could not play. And, and so the white, you're, you're creating a white moral league where black Americans are not part of the moral tenor of the time. And, you, and people don't even realize that they're doing it when they say you have to judge Lincoln by the, by, by the climate of his time. In truth, black America has always been more prescient, more correct about race relations in this country at every single stage of our history. And never once has the majority of white population turned and said, you know, we got it wrong every single time in our history. You got it right. Maybe we ought to listen to you. So I, I, I just feel like, yeah, you, but there are sorts, in the last 20, 30 years, there's all this scholarship, all this work, all this activism, which is also changing America. And, and we saw it in the streets of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, all these young people organizing, speaking out. And that's what gives me hope.
question. Oh, we I tend to give long answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, I, 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 I'm an essayist and answer, not a, not a, not a uh, Twitter person. We'll have this other, so I, ha I have, uh, so one question, since you mentioned the book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, there's a quote from it. From its very beginnings, America had two irreconcilable goals. One goal was to seek equality, freedom, and democracy. The other goal was to maintain white supremacy and the domination by whites, by white people over any color. Okay, so that is the premise. And so, this could go in a diff different ways. Um, I know that one concept in your book on writing, Strangers, is this notion of irreconcilable goals. And it struck me that the very language you're using about craft is also, it, the, the very term is in the premise of this book. And then it got me thinking about, you know, the ongoing story, the unfolding story of America, the drama we're all living. Um, and there's also a great quote by Mamet at the beginning of the book, an epigraph. Um, Is there anything in the unfolding story of America that you feel in relation to irreconcilable goals? Um, can you just talk about that a so, little? So, you know, I, in, in my book, um, I'll do a plug. <laughs> this book is Stranger's Journey, Race, Identity, and Narrative Craft in Writing. When I talk about narrative craft, I say story starts with the goal. And then there's blocks to goals. One of the blocks is if you have irreconcilable desires. I pledge to be married my whole life. I like my secretary or my coworker. I think I can be married and have an affair. You know, so two goals are irreconcilable. What happens when people have irreconcilable goals is they lie about the irreconcilability of those goals. They 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 think they they lie. And Mamet's quote was: "Every play begins with the lie." When a lie is exposed, the play is over. So the tale of America is continuing to go because we continue to tell lies about our history, about who we are. And that those lies, you know, it, part of the premise of my book is the way we tell our history, the stories we tell, and the structures that exist beneath those stories continue to structure how we narrate the present. They aren't you know, Faulkner said the past isn't past, it's not even dead, right? Well, those structures are still there. That irreconcilability is still there. And when we say we don't want to look at our history, we, you know, the 1619 Project is un-American, that's part of the lie. It is who we are. The, the way, you, near the, uh, in the book I talk about a dialogue between the South African writer Jam Coetzee and the therapist. And they talk about narratives in therapy. Well, one of the things people do oftentimes as children is you repress memories. And part of that repression is, is a, a, a tool of survival. Because if you actually remember the trauma, you would go crazy as a child because you have no control over it. So you forget it. You deny it. 
later when you enter therapy, you begin to uncover things and you have to create a new narrative which, which incorporates what you've denied about the past. That is what America needs to do. It needs to create a new narrative about America which tells the complete truth. And what that happens when you tell a new narrative about your life or you tell a new narrative about the nation, it changes the identity of the people in the nation. It changes your identity. And Baldwin says the question of identity is a terror as primary as the nightmare of the mortal fall which means it's as scary as understanding you're going to die. And that's why people are so terrified now. Certain people are terrified because the, the threat of the demographic change is a questioning of their own identity. And they want to go, no, I want to think about Robert E. Lee in a certain way. I want to think about the past in a certain way. I don't want to remember these things. But these things continue to exist in the present. So we have to, you know, we have to, be, you know, and Coetzee talks about the reconciliation in South Africa and how they created a new narrative for South Africa by having everybody, every portion of the population tell its tale and saying, this is the tale of South Africa, right? We have to do that. What is fortunate is I'm part of the first fully integrated generation of American authors, right? My generation, we have Native American, we have Latino authors, we have African American authors, we have immigrant authors. It's a completely different context for what American literature is, and all of those authors are bringing up the past. But it's also for white authors, there, there's a book, I can't remember the name, but Forsyth County is one of the sundown counties where they kicked out all the black people in Georgia, right? And Natasha Trethewey, the African-American poet, was writing in AWP with this white writer, and she said, well, in a cab or an Uber, and said, where are you from? And he said, Forsyth County. And she said, you know the story of Forsyth County, right? And he said, yeah. And she said, why aren't you telling it? And he wrote a book about Forsyth County. That's the charge for white writers. From that, I, I take it's more important than ever. The writers, the artists who are recreating the narratives, subverting, re-envisioning, reimagining the narratives. Yeah, I what? mean, Jeff Chang in Who We Be, The Colorization of America, which is a study of post-civil rights American culture, says, you know, artists um, hear the unheard. They tell the untold. They see the unseen. And he says, every... Uh, instance of political change is preceded by cultural change. It, in fact, political change is the last manifestation of cultural change which has been taking place. And that has been happening. That's where the arts come in because people are telling a different story. They're painting different paintings. They're seeing the unheard, telling the untold. And that's why you know, people react to us, oftentimes, politicians, with, with a sense of danger, because we're, we're right. We are, simply by telling the truth, you change the, the political mindset of, of the country. All right, thank you. Questions from the audience? Jim? Jim? 
in the process of change that you're talking about that's happened for our eyes in the last generation, the American Renaissance, the, you know, the African-American Renaissance, the Asian-American Renaissance, it's all in the last 50 years. It's, let's, I wonder what you think about the academy we're in. This was the first university that had a Native American Studies Department, maybe the second to have an African American Studies Department. Both of them pushed from below what they, but they responded. Uh, and then I think of Theater Mew, and I think of Penumbra, and uh, and now colorblind casting is just, you know, uh, Regina Williams just played Prospero at the, and it was just the, you know, the top where, I don't know that we're done with that though, and I wonder where are we in this? I mean, this. The progress you're talking about, or you've mentioned, is astonishing. But, but it's, and the academy has stepped up. But what, what more do we need? I'm sure there's lots more, and you're you're already talking about that. But I just wanted to. Well, we're we're in a time when they're removing children's book about Ruby Bridges, right? I mean, just telling the tale of this brave African American girl who segregated the school while people were shouting and spitting at her. And, and I, I, you know, the, the white conservatives, you can't tell that story. It, 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 will, it will hurt the white kids. And, and this, this whole thing about, like, it's going to, and I don't understand, it's, it's like, if African Americans can tell the stories of the way their ancestors were tortured and imprisoned and can live with that truth that that's what happened to my great-great-grandfather. Why is it that white people are so fragile they can't hear the same tale? Why are white kids so fragile? You know, in, in, in the introduction to We Are Meant to Rise, I quote Olivia Rodriguez, who's a teacher on the North Side. And she asked her all-black class, what does America mean to you? And she said 100% of them wrote about police brutality. So these white politicians aren't caring about what's happening to these black kids. When Douglas Kearney in his essay says, I have to tell my six or 10-year-old what it means to deal with the police. And he says, I will never forgive America for having to have that talk with my kids. And every African-American parent, and in other areas, other parents of color have to tell their kids that tale. And then a white child reading the story of Ruby Bridges is too fragile? That, that's absurd, right? And, and, and I don't know how we fight this exactly, but I, I think we need, you know, and I, I think more of us artists need to go to outstate. We need to talk to people. And, I, you know, I haven't done that, you know, recently, but that, that, that needs to happen. Uh, more of that needs to happen. We need to talk to people who aren't like us. You know, because th this room is made of people who I know uh, probably agree with everything I'm saying. It's like I have to talk to people who won't agree with what I'm saying. Yes, huh? Uh, 
I'd like to, question. if a, one of the women is asking a question, yeah. Yeah, um, I spent a lot of my career teaching students who were gonna become high school history teachers at state universities. And I don't know, I'm quoting you, I don't know what can be done about the problem of uh, how one should encourage these wonderful, bright young people from all kinds of backgrounds to get into a classroom where they're both going to be challenged by state regulations about what they can teach and what examinations their students have to take. But now they're in a situation where they could actually be um, in trouble with their own principals and administrators because of complaints from students' parents. And so it's not just a question of changing hearts and minds, it seems to me. It's, it's a question of how we actually deal with a system that is now so sick that um, I honestly don't have a suggestion for how it should be addressed. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about that. Well, one of the things is, is that um, I always think of this thing, good will win as long as it's as organized as the mafia. <laughs> so I, I don't think the left in this country is as organized as it should be, right? We aren't speaking out in the ways that we should be. I think for those young people, you have to tell them you have a mission. You're here to save the soul of this country. And you will have to face these difficulties. You know, you, you could be fired, you could, you could get into controversy, and you have to maintain your courage and your belief in the truth, and that you are part of a fight that is greater than you. And so, you know, we're in for another battle. You know, many of us are young enough to remember the battles of the 60s, to remember things like the women's movement, right? Uh, the black arts movement. All of these movements were because people put their you know, themselves on the line. And so we just have to continue to do that. And and they, they are doing God's work by trying to just simply tell the truth about our history. And and I don't know, you know, you, you, Baldwin talks about going to the South, you know, because he wrote about the corrosiveness of hate in, his, in the essay Notes of a Native Son. So that was one of his first essays. He says you can't hate white people because then you destroy your soul. You can't quite love them because of what they do. It says you're, you're sort of moved back and forth between the two. But he went to the South and he realized, oh, my people are really strong. They're fighting this system. They're living with this system for decades and decades. And, and there's a strength in that. And so we have to think about the people that went before us. You know, if you're a woman, people struggled for your rights. If you're LGBTQ, people struggled before you. You're part of an ongoing struggle that is greater than yourself. And what else is there to do with one's life? Those are, those are wonderful wor words. 
which to end on. So thank you. And thank you all for coming to this very special Friends Forum event. I'm very grateful to you, David Mura, to you, Ed Buckley, and very grateful to all of you for coming out here today. Um, I'd like to just say, if you're not a friend of the libraries, please join us. Um, we, would, we would love to have you as a member. And our next event coming right up on April 27th is Zakia Delilah Harris. Um, she is the author of The Other Black Girl. And that event is free, and it'll be at the Kaufman Union's Great Hall beginning at 7 o'clock. So now please join us for refreshments and book signing. Um, and hopefully David will be there for a little while, maybe if you have questions. And again, thank you, thank you so much for coming. Um, and uh, enjoy the reception. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.